everyone, I'm Rosanna and this is AFL Obsessed. I feel like I always say this, but it's been another long week. I actually had to rest because I had some scary symptoms over the weekend with fever, nausea, weakness, and a little bit of coughing that kind of stretched into the week. And I'm feeling better now and I'm kind of monitoring everything, but I came pretty close to having to see the doc. So given the timing and symptoms, it's just alarming. But yeah, I'm delivering this episode a little later than planned, but thanks for waiting. So we have a fixture. Rounds two through five have been released and I'm just breathing a sigh of relief because footy just seems closer than ever. It's only 12 days away. I can do just under two weeks. I mean, Andrew and I are in our 11th week of quarantine, so two weeks is so doable. And it's been great to see all of the photos with full contact training from all the clubs. And I really appreciate now that the topics have also shifted and there's just better discussion, I feel, and things I'm more interested in. And now there's a lot of talk about fairness. So for one, just considering the number of home games for the teams versus away games and how that's relevant because it relates to sponsorship deals for the clubs. So whichever team is designated as the home side makes money from just being able to run their sponsors on boards around the ground and potentially virtually over any of the empty stands. And two, the issue with hubs and how those games will be counted. So the West Coast GM, Craig Vazzo, went on record expecting all of his club's games in the Queensland hub to be considered away. So what about for the other clubs that are playing in the hub? Is it away for both teams? And how do you compensate for that? And do they split the sponsorship? And thirdly, travel and which teams will have to. So the AFL is all about minimizing this for the season when possible, but with border restrictions, that may change in a month or even later in the year. If there's like a potential second viral wave, it's really difficult to kind of determine all of that. So what do you guys think about all of this? I know it's a loaded queue, but it's still a discussion that's more interesting than what we've had for months. My email is aflfootyobsessed at gmail or just aflobsessed on Twitter. I'd love to know your thoughts. And you guys know I always compare Aussie versus American sports because it's what I know. So there's been talk at length historically, but this season I feel like it's resurfaced and it's the speculation about the sustainability of having nine footy teams in Victoria. So I know nothing new, but in terms of here in the U.S. comparatively, let's talk the NFL for a minute. So the L.A. Rams were once the St. Louis Rams. And the St. Louis Cardinals, which had actually relocated there from Chicago, is now the Arizona Cardinals. And the San Diego Chargers are now the LA Chargers. And the Oakland Raiders are now the Las Vegas Raiders. So those are just kind of a few examples because we have a league franchise system here where the teams are overwhelmingly privately owned. And these teams have real history, but the owners kind of just pick up and move. And why move a team? So owners who move a team generally are seeking like a better profits, facilities, more fan support, or just a combination of any of those. And there's always a question about like which team will be the next one to relocate. 
So there's a phrase here in the U.S. about being an athlete in the NFL. And as they say, it's not for long, but maybe that applies to location as well. And in the early years of the NFL, they weren't stable. So the teams moved frequently to survive or they folded just only to be resurrected in like a different city with the same players and owners. So moves and mergers are accepted here. I mean, even if fans are like bitterly disputing it. And when I mean real histories, now let's talk about the NBA. So the Detroit Pistons were originally the Fort Wayne Pistons. And that's because the owner's company manufactured pistons for car, truck, and like locomotive engines. And the Golden State Warriors were founded as the Philadelphia Warriors. And they were named after an old basketball team from 1925. And the LA Lakers were founded as the Minneapolis Lakers, if you can believe that. So Minnesota's nickname is the Land of 10,000 Lakes. So that's where that reference came from. And the Houston Rockets, they used to be the San Diego Rockets. And that's because that paid homage to San Diego's theme of a city in motion. And they had the local branch of an aerospace corporation, which developed the Atlas Missile and Booster Rocket Program. So that's kind of what I mean about like history. I mean, literally the teams almost become a different organization, but they just kind of retain like the thing that it is, except like in a different city, if that makes sense. So it is kind of more about the money here and the owners will go where the money is. And I've always felt that, whereas like in the AFL, it's steeped in tradition, which I really appreciate. And they really honor the histories and culture of the clubs and they really celebrate and like value that heritage. So, for example, the father-son rule, which I love, that generational element kind of supersedes other things, but that's weight that wouldn't really have a leg to stand on here. And I think it's more common over in Australia, at least from what I know, to just move home grounds. Like last week, we talked about the South Melbourne Football Club, and, you know, they became the Sydney Swans. So they still kind of honor that tradition with the Guernsey on the back of like underneath the collar or the neckline, SMFC is still on like the Sydney Swans Guernsey. So we'll discuss more about name changes later here in this episode, but even when the Brisbane Bears merged with the Fitzroy Lions, they still did it with a combined history in mind for both clubs. So what do you guys think about all this? Do you think I'm off the mark? And there's a lot of talk now, too, about, I feel it's a little preliminary, but just crowds at footy later in the season and how that will look. And I really think it's too early to tell, but I feel like there is a lot of talk about potentially getting crowds to the games before the end of the season. So I'd love to know what you think about relocation and crowds, too. And if you think someone would like this podcast or would enjoy it, please share it with them. And I would love if you would give this podcast a review on whatever platform you're using too. As for New York now, I think the Sunday New York Times was particularly poignant this week. So the pandemic has taken 100,000 lives across the U.S. now, and it's hard to grapple or grasp just the impact of that number and the stats, because those are all people who have had lives that were cut short. So the New York Times published a thousand names assembled from obits around the country to kind of reflect the breadth of this incalculable loss. 
And everyone I know here knows at least one or two people who have been affected by this tragedy, if not more. So I'm just thinking, again, all of our essential workers and front-of-the-line healthcare workers worldwide who are still working to help us fight this virus and to help keep us all safe. In keeping with AFL history and the timeline of clubs, I'd like to introduce the Western Bulldogs. like to point out that when the AFLW team plays, the lyric for the theme song is Daughters of the West. And it's a nice change to have a different voice among all of the kind of familiar men's choral arrangements. But we'll get to that a little bit later. So the club was established in 1877 and their colors are red, white, and blue. And a little history. Oh man, How do I adequately convey what the culture of this club was like? Historically, they were very much the underdog from Footscray, which is considered a working-class suburb of West Melbourne. They played their home matches at the Western Oval, and Footscray Football Club had many nicknames in the beginning, including the Bone Mill Fellows, the Saltwater Lads, and most popularly the Tricolors, which is in reference to their colors, um, the club colors on the Guernsey. And in 1928, a Bulldog accidentally ran out onto the field and led the players out against Collingwood at the Oval. And supporters felt that the Bulldog really represented Footscray's Bulldog spirit that season, and it became the club's nickname and mascot ever after. And they're known for winning the 1954 Premiership. And that year was interesting to me because they had a captain coach named Charlie Sutton. 
And the star of that team was 21-year-old center halfback Ted Witten, known as EJ to his friends, and Tedder Teddy to the club, and ultimately Mr. Football because he kind of became this big media celebrity after he left. And he is considered among Bulldogs the best player in the history of the game. And they ultimately renamed the Western Oval to the Witten Oval after him. So Footscray Football Club made it to the grand final in 1961, but they wouldn't make it to another grand final for another 55 years. And in the 60s and 70s, the club really struggled with poverty, internal issues, and having to sell off champion players just to stay afloat. And around and following this period, they actually had six players who would either win or go on to win the Brownlow medal that all left the club. So they had periods of like gradual decline and Footscray Football Club went through decades of disappointments. And in 1989, there was a proposed merger between Footscray and another struggling club just due to financial difficulties. But through the efforts of their community members, the people of Footscray rallied to raise funds and save their club. And they raised more than 1.6 million in a few weeks. So they were able to pay off the club's debts and stay as a club in the AFL. And those efforts were led by Peter Gordon, a solicitor at the time, and Irene Chatfield, among others. And in 1993, there were three specific players, Tony Libertore, Liber, Steve Wallace, and Mark Hunter. And those three were still playing in 1996 when the club actually changed its trading name from Footscray to the Western Bulldogs just to market the club more broadly, specifically to the Western suburbs of Melbourne. And in the 2000s, they made successive finals runs, but they always ended just shy of the grand final. But in 2016, that all changed. So the team finished seventh on the ladder and They qualified, like I said, for the grand final for the first time in 55 years, but they became the first um, team to win from that position. So the club ended a 62-year premiership drought with a 22-point victory over the Sydney Swans. And the coolest thing to me is that the three players I mentioned earlier, Tony Libertori, Steve Wallace, and Mark Hunter, they had their sons all play in that 2016 grand final 23 years later. So Tom Libertori, Mitch Wallace, and Lockie Hunter were all part of that premiership group. So it was almost like a fairy tale for the doggies who had survived two rebuilding phases, erasing their debt, and like a period of stability after decades of uncertainty surrounding the club's future. And I still remember seeing that game and how emotional everyone was in the last few minutes when it was clear that they had won. And Bevo taking his medal off, Luke Beveridge, the coach, and giving it to Bob Murphy is still like an iconic moment in the history of the game, I feel. And there's great photos because Bevo let Bob Murphy kind of take his place of Easton Wood and um, Bob just holding up that cup at the end. And so it's my personal opinion, but I feel like the club battled many different things throughout their history, including their own image. And at times it seemed like they were fighting to prove themselves to the AFL, to other teams, and sometimes to themselves that they deserve to be in the comp, if that makes sense. And that's why it was so incredible to kind of see that win in 2016. And further, in 2018, they claimed the AFLW Premiership after being a foundation member of the league the previous year. So their headquartered and training facilities are at the Winton Oval, like I mentioned, which is nicknamed the Kennel. And I love this fitting name because it's just kind of like the hangar for Essendon. I feel like it's just like 
such a great like essence of a name, kind of like a nickname for a training ground. Some notable players for the Western Bulldogs, Brad Johnson, who played 364 games for the club, Ted Witten, like I mentioned, Mr. Football, Doug Hawkins, Chris Grant, Simon Beasley, who scored the most goals for the club, Liber, Tony Libertore, Scott West, who won seven best and fairest for the club, and Gary Dempsey. And I know there are so many other people, but as for notable coaches, I have to mention Charlie Sutton again and Luke Beveridge. And my fave current player definitely is Bont. I just love him, Marcus Bontempelli. Um, but I also honorable mention, I feel, to Lockie Neal and Lynn Jong um, and Easton Wood too and Josh Dunkley. <laughs> And my favorite retired player, I mean, who doesn't love Bob Murphy, but Bevo too. As for some special incorporations about the Western Bulldogs, the Year of the Dogs is a very raw and real documentary about what it's like to play for and lead clubs. So the team gave unprecedented locker room and board room access to meetings. And I've personally always wondered like what coaches say to motivate their team in the huddle at the end of each quarter and also what they're saying when they call from like the coach's box down to the bench during the game. So that was enlightening and it's all very real and you can really kind of feel like the grit and like raw emotions during all of that. And you can hear the administrators actually deliberate who to cut from the team too. But most unexpected and surprising is just probably the multiple full frontal scenes throughout. I mean, I've never seen a footy documentary with that. There's one scene in particular where they get very creative with fundraising. I think you know what I mean if you've seen this. And you just have to wonder if the players were going along with it all. I mean, also, it's just straight up on YouTube. (laughs) So you can check it out there. And Martin Flanagan previously spent the 1993 season with the team, and he wrote a book called Southern Sky Western Oval. But I really love the book he wrote about the 2016 Premiership team, A Wink from the Universe. I loved this book. He does a comprehensive breakdown about the team's history and really goes into detail about Bob and Bevo and everything the team goes through just to get to that point. And also the feel too at the grand final. You can really feel what it was like to just be in the stand with him. So it's a really good read if you're looking for a book right now. And Frode Jernhart does breakdowns of Bulldog history and also talks about Mr. Football and Irene Chatfield's stories in different episodes. So check out the Stray Dog Footy Pod if you want to know more about the Bulldogs. And now that you know so much about the doggies, I have to play kind of like an outro to a Disney film where they play more of like a pop version of a song when the credits roll. So cheers to the AFLW Western Bulldogs.
hanging with me. Again, if you know someone who might enjoy this pod, I hope you'll share it with them and feel free to rate or leave a review if you like this pod. Stay safe and healthy. Check on your friends and neighbors. We'll get through this like footy guys. I'm virtually hugging you always and we'll talk footy soon. Bye.